Our reading this afternoon comes from Zechariah chapter 1, the verses 1 through 6, and 5, the verses 1 through 4. This is in connection with Lord's Day 37 on the oath. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Then we go on to chapter 5. One of the visions which the Lord gave to this prophet, to Zechariah. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So far, we also turn to Lord's Day 37, which summarizes what the Word of God teaches concerning the oath. Lord's Day, 37 of the Catechism, page 554, reads as follows. But may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner. Yes, when the government demands it of its subjects, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth, to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures? No. A lawful oath is a calling upon God, who alone knows the heart, to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we're dealing again with the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now often the Catechism deals with the commandments from a negative and a positive perspective. So first it tells you what you are not supposed to do. That's the negative. And then it tells you what the commandment implies you should do, and that is a positive. And so for the positive part of this commandment, it says you are permitted to swear an oath. You are not to swear in the sense of blaspheming God, but you are allowed to swear when it comes to something positive. And that's where the oath fits in. But when was the last time that you personally swore an oath? Most of us have never sworn an oath in a court of law. We may have never sworn an oath before other witnesses either. And so this use of the third commandment may seem irrelevant to us. But it is not. Because an oath, properly sworn, is a confession of faith. A lawful oath honors God as the one who bears witness to the truth It is part of God's work of restoration in this world. And that is very relevant to every Christian. So this afternoon I may preach to you the gospel as it comes to us in the oath. A lawful oath honors God as the one who bears witness to the truth. It is taken to God's glory and it is taken for our neighbor's good. So the first question that you might have in your mind is, how does a lawful oath reveal God's glory? Well, to begin with, it acknowledges God as the one who is there. It acknowledges God as the one who sees all things, who knows all things, who ultimately judges all things. God alone is worthy of that honor. But we could not have given him that honor if he had not revealed himself to us first. So to... Swear an oath in and of itself is already a professional faith in the sense that it professes that God has revealed himself to us, that we believe in him. And we, when we swear an oath, we acknowledge that in public. So in that sense, an oath, when you swear it, although it is often sworn in very sad circumstances, still shows us something of God's grace. In the midst of all of our sin, And our wickedness, he reveals himself. He reveals himself as a God of grace, a God of truth. He's there for us even when we are in difficult situations in which human sin has made it impossible for us to know what's what, in which we have to swear an oath. He reveals himself as the God who is there, who is present in that situation. In fact, that Self-revelation of God is central to his relationship with all human beings. The best-known example of this is, of course, the story of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, those people didn't really know who God was. But over time, as God continued to reveal himself to them, they grew to know him. And his reputation continued to grow among them. So his name, Yahweh, which means I am, was identified with his reputation. 
Over time, God's name and his reputation became synonymous. They became identified with each other. In fact, they're so closely identified that God's name represents God himself. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, he refers to the temple as a place where he will put his name. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, he says, Solomon will build a temple for my name. There are other places in the Bible where God's name represents his presence. And then he sent Jesus into the world. Jesus as the very embodiment of the name of the presence of God. Through Jesus, God is always with us. God is determined to be with his people. He's determined to have his name among his people. And so when he commands us to swear our oaths by his name, he commands his people to acknowledge him as a God who is present among us, who witnesses our oaths. Now you think about the privilege of this, that God has actually done this for us, that he has actually revealed himself to sinners. We acknowledge that every time that we take an oath. You cannot swear on the name of of someone that you don't know. And we do not deserve to know God. We do not deserve to have him reveal himself to us. Especially not when we're in these situations that make the swearing of an oath necessary. And yet God does. In Christ, he establishes a, a relationship with us. Christ, it says in John 17, 26, has made the name of God known to us. What a privilege. When we swear by his name, we acknowledge him as the God of truth, the God who reveals himself to sinners. From that perspective, it's quite interesting that that the world still wants people to swear an oath. Even unbelievers who do not know the Lord, who reject the little bit of revelation that they have, still insist on having some form of an oath. The Oaths, Affidavits, and Statutory Declarations Act 2005 of Western Australia gives a number of different ways in which an oath can be administered. And at the top of the list is this phrase, I swear by Almighty God. So that's interesting because a government is not a religious entity. Many people in the government have no interest in in the Christian faith whatsoever, but the government itself still permits you to swear an oath by God. So there are still remnants of this awareness of the presence of God in our system of government, but only remnants. And the government, when it asks you to swear an oath, does it for the wrong reason. When the government wants you to swear an oath, they don't do it because they recognize God as the one who sees all, who knows all. They don't do it because they recognize him as the one who revealed himself to you. They don't do it because they want him to be your witness. Rather, they want to bind your conscience to tell the truth. And they they look at the lives of Christians and they say, well, this is what what matters the most to us, to them. Therefore, this is what we're going to use. We're going to force people to tell the truth as much as possible. So from a Christian perspective, our reason for using the oath is different from the government's reason for demanding it. The government is only interested in the facts of a given court case. But we have a much broader perspective. We swear an oath not just to tell the truth, but to honor God and to testify to his glory. So for that reason, a Christian should never affirm, merely affirm that something is true. According to section 5 of that same Oaths, Affidavits, and Statutory Declarations Act 2005, you can choose to affirm instead of swearing an oath. 
So you can go to court, and when it comes time to be sworn in, instead of saying, I swear by Almighty God, you can say, I sincerely declare and affirm instead. But a Christian should never do this. The whole point of swearing an oath is that we don't verify our own words. We leave that up to God instead. When we swear an oath, we're testifying that God is the one who has revealed himself to us, that he is with us in the courtroom at that moment, that we believe that he will judge us if we speak falsely, and we, we commit ourselves to him and to his judgment. So a Christian who then merely declares and affirms his words, uh, his, um, who declares and affirms a statement, is putting his words on the same level as God, the words of God. And that runs contrary to Scripture. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, we are commanded, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So we're set apart from the people around us, also on this point of swearing oaths. Now what happens when you swear a false oath in court? It's called perjury. And it can lead to a long prison sentence, 7 to 14 years in some situations. That's a terrible punishment. But imagine how much more terrible would be the punishment of God who sees a heart. If you call on him to witness or oath, you're calling on him to judge you if you commit perjury. Our reading from Zechariah touches on that. Zechariah was a prophet who was active when Israel returned from the Babylonian exile. He began his ministry around 520 BC. And apparently not all of the exiles who had returned were keeping God's law. Our reading specifically refers to people who steal and people who swear falsely. Now those two sins of stealing and swearing falsely are often connected. If someone steals, then they're also often willing to swear falsely to commit perjury in order to cover it up. And you actually see that reflected in the structure of the Ten Commandments. You get the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, and then the Ninth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness. So you could argue that stealing represents your relationship with your neighbor, Bearing false witness represents a relationship with God, looking at it from the perspective of the third commandment. You swear by his name after all. So these two commandments, the eighth and the ninth in this case, represent all of God's law. And so our, our, our reading in chapter 5 here presents us with this really strange sight, a flying scroll 10 by 20 by 10 cubits. That's about 4.5 by 9 meters. That's huge. And it is rolled out so that everybody can read it. It's like those advertising banners that you sometimes see being pulled behind small airplanes. Did you know that? That there's actually a company operating out of Jandakot Airport that um, they're called Air Ads, and they will actually pull these aerial billboards behind them, behind an airplane. So you can actually charter an airplane, and I, I can't remember the cost anymore. I think it runs somewhere around 1200 bucks an hour. And they will, they will pull a banner with your message on it behind an airplane for the whole world to see. And that's similar to this. This huge scroll has been rolled out, and it is flying over the land so that everybody who sees it can read God's message. So nobody can say they didn't know. No one can escape. Now, we don't actually get to read all the words on this scroll, but we do read that it contains a curse. 
According to one side of the scroll, everyone who steals shall be cleaned out of the land. According to the other side, everyone who steals, who swears falsely shall be cleaned out of the land. And to be cleaned out of the land means that God will remove them from his presence. The land was the place, the only place in the world where you could meet with God. To be removed from the promised land was to be removed from the presence of God. In other words, God is going to judge these people with eternal punishment. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, there are a couple of details in this which are going to miss the first time that you read it. But if you understand them, they will add a lot to your awareness of the seriousness of what he's actually describing here. This completeness of God's judgment comes out in the dimensions of the scroll. You know, no word of Scripture is pointless. Every word that is there is there for a reason. Even the dimensions of the scroll is here for a reason. These dimensions were um, 20 by 10 cubits or 9 by 4.5 meters. The exact same dimensions of the vestibule in front of the temple. A vestibule is the same thing as a lobby. It is a little bit like uh, if you go out this afternoon and uh, you come to this area between the outside doors and, and the auditorium here where the pigeonholes are, that's like a vestibule, a vestibule. And the vestibule of the temple had the exact same dimensions as the scroll did. 1 Kings 6 verse 3 says that the vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. Now you might wonder, why does it matter? Because the altar was located in front of this, in front of this vestibule. This was a place where people swore oaths. In his prayer at the dedication of the temple, Solomon specifically referred to this area. He said... If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, and then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So that was Solomon at the inauguration of the temple. And Zechariah is prophesying after the temple has been destroyed. The dimensions of this scroll bring the people back in memory, and they place the people in front of the altar where, where the oaths were taken. And that first temple was destroyed for the very reason mentioned on this scroll, because the nation as a whole was corrupt. And one of the signs of this corruption was that people would steal from the poor and then lie in court to cover it up. It was a very common problem once the nation of Israel began to degrade. There was no justice. And now the descendants of these people who have been exiled for that sin, they come back and God is warning them. He's saying to them, don't let this happen again. Don't steal. Don't cover it up by swearing false oaths and then think that you can get away with it. Your parents didn't get away with it. You won't either. God's curse is a force to be reckoned with and it will outlast all corruption. You know, sin is often not punished in this world. Stealing and perjury can get you quite far. Sometimes you can get away with injustice for a long time. 
but you will never get away from God. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. There's no escape, complete and utter ruin for the person who does not repent. And that is encouraging if you're the person who was sinned against. But there's a drastic warning here for the people that are sinning. There is no escape. And the complete extent of this curse was revealed in Jesus Christ. The temple was a place where you went to encounter God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He was the ultimate embodiment of God's presence. He even called himself God's temple. Jesus submitted himself to the full judgment of God's curse. He took God's curse against sin upon himself. That that scroll, he fulfilled every word of it. It remained in him, that curse, and it consumed him. Not because of his own sins, but because of ours. In Galatians chapter 3, we read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Think of the scroll. He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus took the full burden of God's curse on himself. He is therefore the only escape. If you are unconverted and you are living in unrepentant sin, you are under God's curse at this very moment. And don't think for a moment that this only applies to unbelievers. Consider what the Lord said to his people through Moses in Deuteronomy 29. He said, Beware, lest there be among you, church people, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. That's just as true now as it was back then. This curse will destroy you. This curse will destroy you. It will destroy you unless you turn to him in faith. So turn to Christ. Put your faith and your trust in him. Acknowledge his glory. Take your oaths in his name. Then you will be safe. A lawful oath honors God as the one who bears witness to the truth. We've seen that it is taken to God's glory. It is also taken to our neighbor's good. We spent some time on the oath being used when the government demands it of its subjects. But the Catechism goes on to say more than that. It says, Or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth. What is fidelity? Fidelity is the quality or state of being faithful. So the Catechism is suggesting that sometimes you may need to swear an oath outside of a court of law in order to ensure that faithfulness and truth are maintained. In other words, you may be in a situation where people doubt what you are saying, 
and they are not able to verify for themselves that it is true. And in that case, they may need to swear an oath in order to set their minds at ease. Now, this is obviously assuming that you've told the truth in the first place. And people don't always, do they? Even in our church community. We don't always lie outright, but sometimes we misdirect. We hide ourselves behind layers of words. We work with suggestion and innuendo. We argue from emotion. We bluster. We put up a big fuss to divert attention from the issue at hand. In all these things, we're less interested in the truth and more interested in maintaining our own way of doing things. But the oath won't let you do that. The oath will not let you live in two worlds where you have one world of half-truths and exaggeration and another world of God's truth and religious seriousness. The oath will not let you do that. It does not let you live a two-tier life like that. It demands absolute integrity in word and in deed. As we confess in Lord's Day 43 on the ninth commandment, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. So this part about the oath slots into that. A lawful oath honors God as a one who bears witness to the truth, and it is taken for our neighbor's good. Ideally, no one should have to take an oath at all. After all, if we confess that God reveals himself and is present everywhere, then we also know that every word that we speak, every word that we speak, not just our oaths, is spoken in the presence of God. It's spoken with God as our witness, even if we don't take an oath. So among Christians, it should never be necessary to take an oath. After all, the Lord Jesus told us, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, there have been people who have said, well, that means that you should never take an oath at all, and that it's actually forbidden for Christians to do this. That's not what it means. If you read what Jesus said in context, then it's clear that that's not what he meant. His issue was not with oaths. His issue was with people giving the appearance of an oath and then, and then lying while they were pretending to be serious. But oaths as such are permitted for Christians. The Apostle Paul did it in Galatians 1 verse 20. He says, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. This is an oath. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, he says, As God is my witness, he swears an oath. And then he goes on to make his case to the Thessalonians. In Revelation 10 verse 6, we have an angel in heaven lifting up his hand and swearing an oath by God himself. And there are many examples in the Old Testament where, where believers swore a legitimate oath. So we are permitted to swear an oath if it is to God's glory and to our neighbor's good. You think about that. We, we get to be part of restoring fidelity and truth. We get to be part of bringing God's order into the world. A world full of half-truths and innuendo and lies and slyness and we got to go in there and restore some of God's truth. In the end, it all connects back to baptism. Everything does at some point, doesn't it? We've seen that before. It all connects back to your baptism. Remember what we noted at the beginning about God's name, God's reputation. In baptism, 
He attached his name to yours. He did that to you. In an act of unimaginable grace, he underwrote your life with all of your sins. He underwrote it with his name. He underwrote it with his reputation. He already gave his name to you, so to speak. And in doing so, he made you part of the covenant community. He made you, you, part of those who belong to him. So you can take his name, and you can take an oath on it to clear up something that is bothering this community. Something that can only, that can only be an act that is pleasing to God. It is pleasing to God if we do it when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. So what would that look like if one of us swore an oath? Well, um, an elder cannot force you to swear an oath. We are not a court of law. Consistory is not a court of law. We should not try to be one either. But there are situations in which it would be appropriate to swear an oath. Imagine, for example, that an office bearer is accused of committing adultery. There's no evidence. There, are, there were no witnesses. Yet there are these rumors that float and, and they're causing a disruption in the normal functioning of the church community and it's interfering with the work of the office bearers. Well, the, the person in question could then offer to swear an oath before consistory to, to prove that he's innocent. Not just to clear his own name, because if he truly is innocent, well, then he knows that God knows the truth. But he could do it specifically to restore peace in the church, to take away the injury that is being done in this situation to God's glory. Now, you would expect this to be a very rare event, a very solemn one. Maybe our passage from Zechariah 5 would, would be read beforehand about this flying scroll. But at the same time, it would be done with love and gentleness and respect. It would always be done with the intent of restoring this broken relationship between the person and the church. Now, this is just an example. The, the catechism does not restrict the swearing of an oath only to an office bearer. It could be any congregation member. But you would not expect this to happen very often. Most of the time, there are other ways of resolving difficulties. And in many cases, it would not be appropriate to do this. Imagine, for example, if the person in question loved to be dramatic, or if this person was known to stretch the truth in other situations. Well, there's no point in letting someone like that swear an oath. We do not bring God's name into disrepute by inviting people like that to swear an oath. Instead, they need to learn to live a disciplined and godly life, also regarding the statements that come out of their mouth. The oath is in some ways a necessary evil. On the one hand, a lawful oath honors God as the one who bears witness to the truth. On the other hand, the oath would not be necessary if everyone spoke the truth. For that reason, the name of God reminds us that he bears witness to the truth and that he, he will punish all those who swear falsely. And so the oath is a reminder of God's promise that he will punish sin. If you belong to Jesus, all of your sins have been punished in Christ. And one day he will punish all unrepentant sinners completely on judgment day. Then 
the full extent of the oath of, of the curse will be revealed. Then the land will be cleaned out completely. Then it will be purified in perfection. Already now we catch a glimpse of that future whenever a Christian swears an oath. Already now the name of God restores order in the world until the day when he completes his judgment, the day when all things are renewed. On that day, we will inherit a world of absolute truth and we will never swear an oath again. Amen.